Let me echo uh, Jones' welcome to you. If you're a regular to Inspire, of course, you're most welcome. If you are a visitor, Inspire is held every second Wednesday. So if you enjoy this morning, if you'd like to come back, of course, you're most welcome every second Wednesday. And I'll tell you, the morning tea afterwards, that alone is enough for, for you to come. It's a great privilege to have Charles come and share with us this morning. When I heard that Charles was coming to Australia, I thought to myself, how good would it be if he could come and speak and inspire? But I thought it was a fairly long shot because I knew he was down in Barrel teaching to the Bible students uh, down there, Bible school students. And then he was just come from Atherton speaking at the uh, Keswick Easter Convention up there and then back down to Sydney tomorrow for the 50th celebration of the Bible school. I thought it's just not going to work out. It's worked out. How happy am I? So, Charles, please come up. Please come and share with us. Thank you. Well, thank you, Neil. And uh, great to see you. When I first came to Brisbane years ago, I was to speak at a youth conference. Now I'm back to speak to you. <laughs> Things happen when you sit down and wait. <laughs> but it's wonderful to be here, and I'm grateful. Neil, for the opportunity of coming and speaking to you this morning. Let me tell you a story I heard the other day that I thought was, uh, was fun. I thought you might enjoy it, but it has a point as well. Of a little boy who answered the phone one day when his father's friend phoned and wanted to talk to his dad. And he said, is your, is your dad there? And the little boy said quietly, no. Where is he? He's with my mum. What's he doing with your mum? They're outside with the fireman. And what are they doing with the fireman? They're talking to the policeman. What are they talking about? They're waiting for the helicopter pilot. Your dad is with your mum with the fireman talking to the policeman when the helicopter pilot? What are they all doing? They're looking for me. <laughs> I thought it was funny, I'm glad you did. But maybe this morning God is looking for you. And my prayers, I thought about what do I talk to you about this morning, it was very much that there may be some people here, nobody else knows what's going on in your innermost soul and heart, issues you're facing, the tears you shed and the reason for that, the burden you carry. I wanted to share with you something whereby I trust that God will meet with you this morning and meet with me. Let me read you from Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read, first of all, from verse 4 to verse 7, and then jump a couple of verses to read from verse 11 to verse 13. Philippians 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. In case you think I wrote the wrong word down by mistake, rejoice. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then down to verse 11. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him, that is, Christ, who gives me strength. You met somebody who said to you, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I wonder how you'd respond to them. I don't know you, of course, but I think many of us might well respond with some caution, maybe a little cynicism. If it's true that you've learned to be content in every situation, you certainly don't live with the pressures I have to live with. You don't have my disappointments. You don't have my health. You don't face my temptations. You don't have my children. And you're definitely not married to my wife. <laughs> In fact, life is probably very cushy for you. You're probably wrapped in cotton wool. Sky is blue. The sun is shining. The green is grass. And the grass is green and everything in the garden is lovely. Good for you. But of course, if you thought that is the context in which Paul is writing this letter, you would be completely wrong. There are two themes that run through Philippians. And these two themes present themselves as a bit of a paradox to us. First of all, there is a theme of joy that runs through this letter. And uh, it's one of the most positive books in the New Testament. About 20 times you have words like rejoice and joy, be glad. And as you read this and we see that, we might well say to ourselves, Paul is in a very good mood when he's writing this letter. Maybe he's gone on another missionary journey, ended up on a beautiful Mediterranean island somewhere, and he's sitting under a palm tree with Epaphroditus, who he dictated this to, sitting on the next palm tree, and he's saying, Epaphroditus, say to the folks this, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. And he's humming his favorite tune, I've got a wonderful feeling, everything's going my way. <laughs> But you'd be dead wrong because the other theme is suffering that runs through this letter. Four times in chapter one, he describes himself as being in chains, not because that was a trendy thing to do, to stick chains on your body, but he's in prison. The book doesn't tell us where he wrote this from, because Paul knew that Bible scholars would need something to do later on. So people put various ideas, but I'm almost certain that he's in Rome. 
too tedious to go into all the details, but he does say in chapter 4 and verse 23, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That's a pretty good indication he's in Rome, wouldn't you think? If you got a letter from somebody saying, all the saints in Buckingham Palace send you their greetings, you wouldn't say, I wonder if that was written in Tokyo. That's <laughs> no, pretty obvious, isn't it? Why is Paul in Rome? Well, he's in Rome because, as you may know, that uh, when he had gone back to Jerusalem, the end of his third missionary journey, uh, he brought with him a friend from Ephesus whose name was Trophimus. They probably called him Troph for short. <laughs> and uh, Paul had gone into the temple. Trophimus was a Gentile. He got into the temple, which Paul was allowed to do, but Gentiles were not allowed. And somebody put two and two together. They got about 364. <laughs> Because they said Trophimus has gone with him, which he hadn't. And they said Paul is violating the Jewish laws because Paul does no longer respect Jewish laws. In fact, Paul is against Judaism. And all this kind of rumor escalated and gains momentum, as these stories do. And when he came out, there was a great crowd waiting to lynch him. He was arrested for his own safety. A group of men decided they wouldn't sleep until he had been killed. And so that word got out and the group of soldiers took him from Jerusalem for his own safety down to Caesarea to meet the Roman governor whose name was uh, Felix and he stood before Felix and Felix realized he had no case to answer they weren't interested in Jewish petty rules anyway uh, he was the Roman governor but he said if you pay a bri bribe you can go free Paul didn't pay bribes and so he stayed in Caesarea for two years Felix was recalled to Rome Another man called Festus came out to replace him, wanted to clear up all the outstanding cases, got Paul before him. And Paul said, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. You have no right to hold me the way you've held me here already for two years. I appealed to Caesar. And they said, okay, you're a Roman citizen. To Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you will go. They put him on a boat to send him to Rome. The boat sank about two times on the way to Rome. Paul's boat usually sank. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I'm glad he wasn't alive in the days of aviation because his boats did sink quite frequently. And um, he got stranded in Malta, spent the winter there, got bitten by a snake. There were all kinds of exciting things happened to him. Eventually arrived in Rome, and Caesar wasn't interested. And so he spent two years, the end of the book of Acts, it stops fairly abruptly. He spent two years in Rome, some of it in prison, some of it under house arrest. Put it together, two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome. The best part of a year getting to Rome, spending the winter in in Malta on the way and after five years of imprisonment Paul having been deprived of some of the five best years of his life potentially if you were in Philippi and you heard the message we got a letter from the apostle Paul you probably said to yourself man this is going to be a stinker Paul has had five years of confinement and instead he says things like rejoice in the Lord and I'll say it again because you may think I sh meant to write react <laughs> I'll say it again rejoice I wonder if some of us here need to get to know Paul a little bit in this context so I wonder if some of us here are in a bit of a prison somewhere it doesn't have bars of course not visible bars Could be your health has become a prison to you. 
Perhaps your marriage has become a prison. Maybe your children engaged in things which have put prison bars around you, you feel. Maybe you're a prison of bitterness. Things have taken place in your life and it's been really painful. Maybe it's a financial prison. Maybe like Paul, it's a prison of being misunderstood and maybe gossip around you. But if you feel in a prison this morning, hang in here because Paul is saying in this letter, there are resources for life and joy no matter what your situation. Because you see, if your relationship with Jesus Christ works in a prison, no matter what the nature of that prison is, it'll work anywhere. If it doesn't work in a prison, it won't be worth anything anywhere else. Because you know the reality of Jesus Christ, not when the sun is shining, but when you're in darkness. You don't know what is happening. That's when we know the true reality of Jesus Christ. That's why again and again the problems and difficulties and hardships that come into our lives are not our enemies. We see them as our enemies. They're actually our friends. Because it's these that drive us back to Jesus Christ and they us to discover a reality and a depth in the language of Paul here, even a joy that we would never know without those hardships and difficulties. And um, let me give you his formula, you might say. In verse 6, having said in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and I said again in verse 6, let me read it to you again. He says, do not be anxious about anything. That's unrealistic, isn't it? But there's a big but that follows it. Do not be anxious about anything but. In prayer, in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything he says, no matter what situation you're in. He says, but, I have a marking system in my Bible. I have 12 colors. I have one color for link words that change things, like therefore, etc. But, but, it's one of those big words. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything that would normally make you anxious, he says, In everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In other words, the thing that makes you anxious, the thing which threatens you, the thing which frightens you, he says, present it to God, which is a lot more than just praying about it, because we pray about things, and then we go and worry about them as though we'd never prayed about them. I have a friend who uh, wrote a book in German. He's from Austria. He wrote a book in German, and the title of his book is, What Happens After You Say Amen? And the point of that is, do you actually give it to God? <laughs> he says, 
present it to God, and here's the key, with thanksgiving, you know you're giving to God when you say, God, thank you. Not thank you for the problem, but thank you for yourself, that this problem which threatens me does not threaten you. This problem which frightens me does not frighten you. This problem which threatens me over my head is under your feet. Thank you. Presenting it with thanksgiving, and he says, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not saying there, thank God for the situation, but in everything, as First Thessalonians 5.18 tells us, give thanks in all circumstances for the presence and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And if you genuinely give it to him and you leave it with him and say, thank you for this issue in my life, no matter what it is, thank you, I can trust you with it, instead of anxiety, there is a peace that transcends all understanding and it will guard your heart and guard your mind. Because our security is not found in where we are, our circumstances, it's found in who we're with in that situation. I have three kids and uh, they're all grown up now, of course. When my... Uh, daughter Laura was I don't know about five or something I was at home one evening and my wife was out the kids were in bed and uh, I was sitting in the lounge when suddenly I heard from Laura's room a scream it wasn't a cry it was a scream of fear and I got up and ran to her room, opened the door. She was half sitting up in bed. I ran over. I sat down, put my arm around her, sat down on the side of the bed. I said, Laura, what's the matter? She said, there's somebody in the cupboard. I said, no, no, Laura, there's nobody in the cupboard. There is, there is, there's somebody in the cupboard. I said, Laura, there's nobody in the cupboard. They're too big, they wouldn't fit. She said, no, there's something in the cupboard. I said, Laura, you've had a nasty dream. And I held her and she slowly quieted down. As I held her, suddenly I heard a noise from the cupboard. <laughs> I looked at Laura and she looked up at me. I said, Laura, there's somebody in the cupboard. So I got up, went across to the doors. It was a wardrobe. She was sitting there looking at me, big eyes the size of saucers. Put my hand on each handle, looked back at Laura. And I opened the doors and there was the cat <laughs> locked in the wardrobe. So I picked it up and put it out to the window. When I sat down, put my arm around Laura, I said, Laura, that was a nasty fright, wasn't it? Naughty cat, who put the cat in the cupboard? Now you settle down and go back to sleep. She said, but I'm afraid. I said, no, you had a nasty fright. But it was only the cat, remember? And the cat's gone now, you saw it go. 
It'll be landing shortly. <laughs> she said, but I want you to stay. I said, why? She said, if you stay, I won't be afraid. I knew exactly what she meant. <laughs> and so I stayed, tucked her in, sat in a chair in her room, and she went to sleep, and then I left. What she was saying was this, I know it's just the cat, but I was afraid, and if you stay here, I'll be okay. Little girls think, if my dad is here, nothing's gonna touch me. What Paul is saying here is, is this, in the things that make you anxious, and of course the things that make you anxious, it's not the anxiety that's the problem, it's what you do with it. He said, give it to God and say, God, it does frighten me. I hate this thing in my life. It does keep me awake at night. But thank you, I can give it to you. I can trust you. And he says, instead of anxiety, there is a peace that passes understanding. In other words, it's not rational. You might even feel a bit guilty about it. You might think, I should be uptight about this. Why am I so relaxed? I'll tell you why you're so relaxed, because you've given it to Jesus and you're trusting him. So Paul says here. When he says that the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and guard your mind, He's not talking about peace here as the absence of trouble. We tend to think of peace in that kind of way. Peace in Ukraine, for which we long, means the war is finished because that's how we think of peace. There's another kind of peace too. I heard some time ago of an art competition, painting competition that was held in England and the subject to be painted was peace, and there were two prize winners. One went to the northwest of England, to the beautiful Lake District area. If you know anything about England, you may or may not know, but that's the most beautiful part of England. My wife grew up in the Lake District. And he painted a picture, the artist, whoever it was, painted a picture, the lake in the foreground, beautiful mountains, it's the most mountainous part of Britain in the background. A couple of puffs of cloud floating by, a blue sky. He took a bit of a liberty there. There are not many blue skies up in the northwest of England. A little family of ducks floating by in the foreground on the lake. You look at that picture and you thought to yourself, man, I'd love to go there. What a beautiful place. Oh, it feels so warm. I'd love to go there. And he called his picture peace, and he won second prize. The other man went down to the southwest peninsula of England called Cornwall, the county of Cornwall. And he painted a picture on the coastline in a storm. And there was a cliff coming down into the Atlantic Ocean and this storm was sending in these gigantic waves that were rolling in and crashing against the base of the cliff and sending up their surf. The, the sky was 
dark with heavy cloud. The rain was falling. On the top of the cliff was a tree at a 45 degree angle as the gales swept it back. Look at that picture. You thought, man, that's cold. I wouldn't like to be there. But two thirds of the way up the cliff, there was a cleft in the rock. In the cleft of the rock, there was a nest. And on the nest, there was a gull. And he called his picture peace. And he won first prize. And the kind of peace that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us is not the tranquil late district scene. It's the peace in the midst of turmoil. And Paul says about this that he had to learn it. He says, I have, to, I have learned, he says in verse 10, to be content. And he learned it not by being in lovely circumstances. He learned it by the trauma that characterized his life. I mean, let me just read you one, a few verses from Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, where he says there, he's uh, talking about some pseudo apostles, people who claim to be apostles, and in the same time, they were saying that Paul wasn't the genuine article. And the main reason Paul wasn't the genuine article was that too many things were going wrong for Paul. And they were of the persuasion, if you are really a genuine servant of God, he will smooth the rough paths and everything's going to be easy for you. And uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, uh, are they servants of Christ? Brackets, I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. And then he gives his evidence. I've worked much harder than they have. I've been in prison more frequently than they have. I've been flogged more severely than they have. I've been exposed to death again and again. So he says, in other words, how many times have these guys been in prison? How hard do they work? How many times have they been uh, flogged? How many times have they been exposed to death? And then he goes on and gives some detail. He says in verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. For those whose arithmetic isn't so good, that's 39 lashes. And uh, the leather straps attached to a handle would have pieces of bone tied into them every time the 39 lashes came against the body of the victim it would break the skin and pull out chunks of flesh some would so somebody who had been under the 39 lashes would hardly be recognizable their body would be so disfigured now says Paul I had that five times three times I was beaten with rods that's just beaten with sticks. Once I was stoned, we know about that, that was in Lystra, and they stoned him, left him for dead, concussed, and uh, he eventually came around and says he got up, went back into the city. I would have got up and gone in the opposite direction, but he went back into the city, probably went to the town square, stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, I was telling you something very important when I was rudely interrupted. Let me finish, you know. He said he was stoned, and he says three times I was shipwrecked, as I mentioned, his boats usually sank. <laughs> I spent a night and a day in the open sea, not even the courtesy of sinking near the coast, where most boats sunk as they hit something near the coast. 
No, out at sea, spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I think he was in danger. <laughs> I've labored and taught. I've often gone without sleep. Nights, I've had no bed to sleep in. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. This is the man, by the way, who said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But the days he said, I've had no food on my table. But I didn't die. I can live with that. And not just that. He says, I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. I've had days with no clothes. We don't know about that. Maybe he was in the bathtub on the boat when it sank once and he swam away with nothing on. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You think I take this casually? No, I live under the weight of my concern for the churches. Who's weak? Do I feel weak? Who's led into sin? Don't I inwardly burn? You think as an apostle, I don't get tempted like you do. Of course I do, he says. I know it is to be led into sin. Don't I inwardly burn? And by the way, he'd used that expression earlier in 1 Corinthians as a metaphor for sexual desire. Better to marry than to burn, he said there. Now he says... You don't think who's led into sin and I don't and what do you, bring? you don't think as a single man traveling the Mediterranean I don't struggle with sexual temptation? Of course he did. Now this is the man who says, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to give my struggles, my situation, my circumstances to God and say, Thank you. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, so don't try to explain it. Don't feel guilty about it either. Holds on to my heart and holds on to my head, my mind. And Matt read to us that verse from Isaiah 26 earlier about, uh, what does it say? Uh, great peace have those whose mind is fixed on you to that effect. You read that during one of the songs. Whose mind and whose heart. And Paul says, having learned to be content, whatever the circumstance, because I've learned what it is to present things to Jesus Christ and then say thank you for your sufficiency in them, no matter what I face, whether it's external or internal, and the biggest battles most of us face, including Paul, were probably internal, as well as external. He said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. What is the secret? He says in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What does that mean? He doesn't mean I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, I can jump over the moon and all that kind of stuff. No, of course not. The context is I can survive in any situation where my back is up against any wall, whether it's tough or easy. My strength is in Christ. I can live in any situation right now for five years behind my prison bars, chained to my prison guards. I can live here, I can cope because Christ is my strength. 
the things about Jesus Christ we only learn when we're in trouble. We can hear about it. But we don't learn it until we're in trouble. That Jesus Christ is my strength. Doesn't just give us strength, he is our strength. His presence in us. There's a man who's in heaven now who I used to know. And he had a little saying that went like this, for this I have Jesus. He would say, situations he was in, maybe difficulties, he'd say, for this I have Jesus. And he printed a number of yellow sort of velvet bookmarks and uh, on them had these words, for this I have Jesus. He would give them away to people. One day he had a stroke. He had two strokes in fairly quick succession. I would telephone his wife to ask how he was doing. And one day I phoned her and she said, you know, you're in luck. He's just come home from hospital this morning. She said, he's sitting here. He can't speak. But I'm going to hand the phone to him. He may make some noises. You won't understand what he's saying. His speech is pretty well gone. Said he can't walk. So she handed the phone to him. And I said, uh, I just want to say that we're concerned about you and we love you. And he said, uh, he began to speak. It was slow and it was slurred. But I heard what he said. He said, For this, I have Jesus. Shortly afterwards, I was speaking at an event in England called Spring Harvest. It's held every Easter, and it draws oh, 50,000 people. It's a huge event, and it's in two locations. And uh, one of the evening celebrations, I, I told that story. It had been just a couple of weeks before. When I got back home, A couple of weeks later, I got a letter in the post from a lady who said, I was at Spring Harvest the night you talked about, for this I have Jesus. I tried to find you afterwards, but I wasn't able to. She said, the office of Spring Harvest was slow to give me your address or means of contacting you, but eventually they gave it to me. She said, uh, I want to tell you my story. She said, two years ago, my husband was killed in a road accident on his way to work. We have two young children. It was the worst thing that could have happened to us. The day before he died, a friend of mine had written me a letter, and I opened the letter, and uh, contained in the letter was a yellow bookmark that said, for this I have Jesus. I thought to myself, that's sweet, that's lovely, and I put it down. The next morning, a policeman came to my door, asked me to accompany him to the hospital. He said, your husband's been in a road accident and I want to take you to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, he had died. So they had to identify his body. And then we went to pick up my children from school and bring them back home. She said, it was the darkest day of our life. When I got home, I came into the kitchen and there 
left from yesterday on the table was the yellow bookmark for this I have Jesus she said I cannot tell you what that has meant to me in these last two years so much so she said we put on our on my husband's tombstone for this we have Jesus I ask you as I finish is this your Jesus you see you can have a Jesus who's simply the patron of your Christianity you do it in his name you can have Jesus who's the model you try and copy him or you can have Jesus who is your life your strength your comfort who has made unto us everything that we need And Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. The secret is not how to get God to take you out of your circumstances. The secret he's learned is how to bring God into your circumstances. That's what he's learned. In the prison cell, in the sinking boat, Jesus is my life my strength as you said elsewhere whether I live or die my only interest is that Christ be glorified in my body we're going to die of course one of us all of us rather <laughs> not one of us all of us one day that's okay it's all part of the plan whether we live or die whatever situations we face he is our strength. For this I have Jesus. Do you know him that way? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for every person in this room this morning. Thank you that so many of us look back on a history of your presence and your working in our lives. We have stories to tell, experiences that made us different people. But I pray, Lord Jesus, we'll be men and women who know the daily, continuous sufficiency of your presence in us, no matter what we face. And I pray for people who are facing hardships right now and difficulties and fears some who may be bereaved Lord we weep with those who weep we mourn with those who mourn but we pray they will know a fresh depth of your sufficiency and your presence and as we're going to sing in a few minutes that we know blessed assurance Jesus is mine something far bigger than the means of going to heaven when I die but he's mine here and now on earth on the way to heaven whatever situation I face and we pray you make that increasingly real for each of us for we ask it in Jesus name amen let's stand together and sing that very song as we conclude this morning
blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my
This is our song, praising our Savior all the day long. This is our story. This is our God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.